I want to welcome you all here to uh, Kettlebrook Church. We are in our annual march towards Christmas on this Sunday as we look forward to uh, and kind of prepare our hearts and our homes for the celebration of the birth of Jesus the Messiah, the promised one of God. And to do that, we're going to take a few weeks and look at this ancient prophetic book in the Old Testament called Zechariah. So if you have a Bible, you will find Zechariah on page 668 in your Bibles. We're going to read the passage that Russ just got done reading for us. Or if you have your own Bible, find the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, and then turn back a few pages. You'll go through the the prophet Malachi, and then you'll land on Zechariah. And we are going to be reading from Zechariah chapter 1 this morning. Now, I have a confession to make this morning. I love my life. I love what I get to do. I love uh, the people that I work with, for the most part, with a few exceptions. Um, I, love, <laughs> I, love the, I love the elder board. We have an awesome elder board. I love my wife, okay? My wife and I, we get to be on the same staff together. We get to do ministry together. We get to lead a small group together. Um, and I love the, the season that we're in as a family right now. We have two kids that are away at college. They're working. They're paying for their own college. And uh, they come back occasionally. They actually like and enjoy coming back home to visit with us. And, um, and our kids, all three boys that we have, they're actually, they actually enjoy being with one another. We're just, we, we've made it to this great season in our life. And I just, I, I just love where we're at right now. I just love my life. It's hard for me to imagine that I came very close to sabotaging this great life that I now appreciate and enjoy so much. You see, many, many years ago, when um, I was in college, I dated a girl pretty seriously for about two years. Her name is Chris, and, um, and we talked briefly about marriage. But because even back then I had this inkling, I had this hunch that someday I would be living internationally overseas as a missionary. And Chris didn't kind of share that same passion. She's like, I don't feel that same leading. We eventually called it off. And we, we broke it up. Uh, we still stayed friends, but uh, we just kind of went our separate ways. Now, fast forward two years, and I meet this smoking hot red-haired gal who does want to be a missionary. And I'm like, hey... You want to be a missionary? You want to be a missionary with me? Because I wouldn't mind being a missionary with you, you know? So, and, um, and so after some coaxing, you know, we start dating and we get into this dating relationship. So about six months into our dating relationship, I am driving home from work. I live in Waukesha at this time. I'm driving home from work. Now, to back up, I have to, I have to back up a little bit. When I was dating Chris, Chris, although she was from Kenosha, she had a grandmother that lived in Waukesha. And during our dating years together, I got a chance to get to know this grandmother. So I'm driving home from work, and I drive by Chris's grandmother's house. And I'm like, oh, there's Chris's grandma's house. And I see, and I notice, and Chris's car is in the driveway. I'm like, oh, Chris is in town visiting from the Twin Cities. And being a young, stupid, naive bachelor, I turn around, 
and kind of crash their party. And I'm like, hey, Chris. And she's like, oh, wow. You know, and we kind of get caught up. And I sit down and have tea with her and her grandma for about 30 minutes. And I go on and everything is fine. No harm, no foul. And uh, that evening, I'm talking with Cara on the phone, you know, as you do when you're dating, you're kind of getting caught up on the day. And, um, and just out of nowhere, Cara asked this question. She says, she says, so I'm just curious. Have you seen Chris at all lately? I'm like, what? Like, where did that come from? And, and she's, like, she's like, I don't know. I just feel like I'm supposed to ask this question. And, of course, I am blown. I am busted. Because up until this time, I have not shared anything about my impromptu visit with Chris. Because I knew that uh, if I was to say, oh, you know, the only other girl in my life that I ever talked about marriage with? Well, I saw her today and I sat down and talked with her. I knew that that was not going to fly. And believe me, it didn't fly <laughs> at all, you know. And, and, I, and I learned something. I, I learned something at, at that time. First of all, I, I learned that, uh, that if I am going to have any chance of marrying this gal, okay, that, that I am going to have to stay on the straight and narrow, okay? Because at, at that time, I had to fess up to something that I had conned myself into thinking that was innocent and harmless to our relationship, but deep down inside, I knew would be hurtful to Kara and damaging to the trust that is so important in any relationship. And I learned that, that I had to stay on the straight and narrow in this relationship. And the other thing that I learned, I learned that God had outfitted Kara with like some sort of sixth sense, Okay? <laughs> It's freaky, okay? And I'm, I'm not kidding. You know, ask any one of our kids and they'll tell you. Like, God wakes Kara up at the most inopportune times from their perspective, right? And they're like, if you're doing something wrong, it's only a matter of time before mom will find out. It's just inevitable, okay? But the biblical word for what I did at that point was repent. Because I had to wake up and realize that if I had any chance of winning this gal, I had to be completely above board. No game playing, no secrets, no breaking trust. I had to grow up and become a man of integrity. I often wonder what would have happened if I didn't learn that lesson. What if I continued to play the field, to do stupid things that were hurtful to Kara uh, and harmful to her relationship? Eventually, because Kara has very strong boundaries, she would have, understandably, eventually dumped me. And I would have never, ever had a chance to enjoy and appreciate the wonderful life that I have right now. The biblical word for what I did at that time is repentance. It literally means to change direction. And for whatever reason, repentance is looked upon as a dirty word in our culture. It means you have to own up to something. It means you have to admit failure, with, which for some people evidently is a fate worse than death because so many people are completely unwilling to even entertain the idea of repentance. But in the scriptures, it's not a dirty word. 
It's not a negative word. It's actually a beautiful word because it is God's great invitation into this wonderful life that he has for each and every one of us. And just like I would have never, ever known the amazing life I appreciate right now had I not changed my ways and repented of some very foolish behavior back when I was 25 years old, so to each one of us may never get a chance to, op- to know uh, the, the amazing life and wonderful life that God invites us to without stepping through this narrow door called repentance. And the opening of the book of Zechariah is going to help us understand this principle. Now, Hezekiah was written some 2,500 years ago, uh, about 500 years before Christ appeared on the scene. It's written to a group of uh, Jewish exiles that are trickling back into their homeland. They have been away for almost 70 years, being taken away by the Babylonian Empire, and now they have an opportunity to go back to their homeland. And so to understand kind of the context and the content of the book of Zechariah, I just want us to watch this short clip from our friends at the Bible Project. The book of the prophet Zechariah. The book is set after the return of the exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem. And we're told in the book of Ezra that Zechariah and Haggai together challenged and motivated the people to rebuild the temple and look for the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, long ago, Jeremiah the prophet had said that Israel's exile would last for 70 years and that afterwards God would restore his presence to a new temple and bring his kingdom and the rule of the Messiah over all nations. The dates at the beginning of this book tell us that those 70 years are almost up. But life back in the land was hard and it seemed like none of these promises were going to come true. Why? And the book of Zechariah offers an explanation. It has a fairly clear design. There's an introduction which sets the tone for a large collection of Zechariah's dream visions. And that's concluded by chapters 7 and 8. And then this is followed by two more large collections of poetry and prophecy. Let's just dive in and see how the book works. It begins with Zechariah's challenge to his generation to turn back to God and not be like their ancestors who rebelled and refused to listen to the earlier prophets, which landed them in exile. And so now the returned exiles respond positively to Zechariah. They repent and humble themselves before God, or so it seems. Or so it seems. So um, that was done by our friends at the Bible Project. If you're interested in watching the rest of that video or a ton more real cool videos like that, you can go to thebibleproject.com or go on their YouTube site and just surf to your heart's content. But getting back to the context, so the 70 years of captivity by the Babylonian uh, Empire are almost at an end. Babylon has, been, Babylon has been taken over by the Persian Empire, and King Cyrus has issued a decree that the exiles of Israel can now go back to their homeland and begin rebuilding the temple. Okay? Now, the Babylonian Empire, or the Babylonian exile of Israel, was not an accident, okay? They were not victims of circumstances. They were not just in the wrong place at the wrong time. This was the culmination, this is the conclusion of years and years of repeated warnings from God of what would happen to Israel if they directly disobeyed God's commands and ordinances. And we see this all throughout the scripture, that God is constantly and continually warning Israel, if you turn away from me, if you fail to keep my commands, I will 
take you out of the land that I have settled you in. We see this over and over again. At the very beginning, at the very outset of the nation of Israel, we see this in Leviticus chapter 26. He says, but if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands that he has just given them, Ten Commandments all throughout the book of Leviticus. And if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Okay, Leviticus, next one. When they're just about to enter into the land and when they're standing on the very threshold of the land of Canaan that God has given them, he again repeats this to them. After you've had children and grandchildren and have lived a long time in the land, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and arousing his anger, I call heaven and earth as a witness against you that this day you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live long there, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. Next one, at the very zenith, at the very peak of their influence in the world, right when, when Solomon is dedicating the temple to the Lord, this is the reply that, that Solomon gets from God. He says, speaking to the whole nation here, but if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you and go off and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I have given them and will reject this temple I've consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. So again and again and again, this warning is repeated to Israel. And even in the book of Zephaniah in chapter 7, we say that what has happened to them, their, their exile into Babylon, was exactly in fulfillment of what God had been saying. He says, They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the laws, uh, to, the, to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by His Spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. Essentially looking back at what happened in the Babylonian uh, captivity and saying, all this happened because they turned away from me and refused to listen to me and to, to follow my commands. And so the question that Zechariah is essentially asking the people who re, are returning now from, from Babylon, they're saying, are you going to be any different from your forefathers? And, and the Lord gives this great invitation to the people coming out of exile at the very outset of the book. Kind of like framing everything that he's going to say next. And the promise is this. Return to me and I will return to you. Return to me and I will return to you. This is a promise that is in, in some way, shape or form is repeated over and over again in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. That when we as God's people humble ourselves... And get in our minds to return with all of our heart to the, to the Lord. He promises that he will do the same to us and will welcome us with open arms. And so in, essentially God is making available to these people a wonderful opportunity, an amazing invitation into the life and the future that he has in store for them. And in chapter 8 of Zechariah, we kind of get a 
picture, a drawing of what this life is going to look like. He says old people are going to be sitting on park benches with their canes talking about the day's events. Children are going to be playing in the streets of the city. There's going to be plenty of eat, plenty to eat. There's going to be abundance and prosperity and there's going to be all sorts of blessing poured out on Israel. The Hebrew word that kind of encapsulates this life that Zechariah is painting in, in Zechariah chapter 8 is the word shalom. Okay, we constantly think of shalom as the word peace, but it's much more than that. It's when everything is as it should be, when everything is in order, when, when your world is right. Okay? And what Zechariah is saying this, saying here, in order to experience this amazing future, they have to go through this doorway of returning to the Lord. It's interesting, the word return in verse 3, the word turn, he says turn from your evil ways and practices in verse 4, and repent in verse 6, all come from the same Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is shub. Shub. Can you say that with me? Shub. Okay, Shub. And if Israel wants to enjoy and experience the amazing life and the blessing that God has in store for them, they first have to learn how to do the Shub. In order to experience Shalom, you must first do the Shub. Shub, predominantly in the Old Testament, means to turn around 180 degrees. It means to go in the other direction, to change direction, to return or turn back to a place where you started, a place where you should be. Shub. We no like to do the shub. We, it's not a dance that we're familiar with. For whatever reason, I don't know if it's arrogance or if it's brokenness or if it's shame or all of the above. We just don't do the shub very well. We don't like to repent and turn. It doesn't have a very positive connotation in our language and society. We don't dance the shub. But it is a dance that we're going to have to learn how to do. If, like the people in Zechariah's day, we're ever going to step into the life and future that God has in store for us. Return to me, and I will return to you. Just like the people of Israel coming out of exile, God has plans and purposes in store for each and every one of us. Plans to bless us. Plans for our welfare, for a life and a future that is just waiting for each and every one of us. But in order to experience that life, that shalom, we have to do the shub. We have to learn how to repent. It's amazing. I'm um, going to seminary right now. Okay? I have to be legitimate. Right? And so I'm going to seminary. And in my seminary class, amazing, we're talking about God. Okay, I know that's shocking that you'd be talking about God in a seminary class, but yes, we are. And we're talking about all of his amazing attributes and characteristics, and we're talking about his nature, you know, um, all, the, all the omnis, right? He's omniscient, he's all-knowing, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's omnipresent, he's, you know, everywhere at once, all the, all the omnis of his, 
of his awesomeness and his, and his greatness. But, the, but the, uh, the one characteristic that stood out to me above all the rest that I really kind of centered in on was his benevolence. And the benevolence of God simply means this, that God has our best interests at heart. Isn't that amazing? The God that is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere at once, who's almighty, has our best interests at heart. He wants what is best for us. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to know Him. He wants us to walk with Him. He wants us to know His ways to, and, and to know the peace and to know the shalom that He offers us, this life of blessing. And in order for us to walk into that life, in order for us to step into that life, we first have to do the shoe. We first have to turn from our wicked ways and turn back to the Lord to acknowledge that His ways are right, His ways are best, and what we have been doing isn't working for us, that we are broken, disobedient, dysfunctional creatures. And we repent, and we do the shoe, and we turn towards Him. It's... Great. I'm um, meeting with a group of uh, addicts right now. We are all in recovery together. Okay. We're I'm going to my recovery group. And uh, if you're here and you don't think you need to be in recovery, I have a word for you. Denial is not a river in Egypt. Okay. We are all in recovery of something. Okay. Because we're human beings. And it's interesting, in this recovery meeting, uh, we're, we're, go, we're walking through these steps. And the first step is that we have admitted that we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behavior and that our lives had become unmanageable. Perhaps if each one of us were honest and if we did some serious soul-searching or even asked some friends and some family members who may know us and love us the most, that each one of us could come up with a few things that we would say have to change in our lives. And the first step to entering into this amazing life of blessing that God has for each and every one of us is to admit and acknowledge what exactly it is and then to turn, do the shub, and repent of whatever it is and ask God by His Spirit to help change us. Return to me and I will return to you. The invitation is as real and as relevant for us today as it was to the people of Israel 2,500 years ago. The elders of Kelbrook are reading a book right now and the, the topic of the book, the subject of the book is the kingdom of God. And the author, his working definition of the kingdom of God is that it is the people of God, in the place of God, under the rule and reign of God, and experiencing the blessings of God. That's his definition of, of the kingdom of God. And it's interesting, we want to experience the blessings of God, but we're not so keen on placing ourselves under the rule and reign of God. Okay? But the two are inextricably linked. You cannot experience the blessing of God unless you're willing to place yourself under the authority and the rule 
and reign of God. And so we want to have, you know, things like we want God to bless our wedding and our marriage, even though we've been living together and having sex together up until marriage. Okay? That's counterintuitive, contradictory. You're not going to experience the blessing of God on your marriage if you've refused to live under his rule and under his authority. Okay? We say we believe that when Jesus said things like we're not supposed to amass and accumulate things, that it really doesn't apply to us. When Jesus said that we're supposed to make the kingdom of God our first and foremost priority in life, that that was not meant to be taken literally. We, we think that we're somehow we're able to experience the blessings of God but we don't have to put ourselves under the rule and reign of God. And that just doesn't work. And when we realize that something in our life doesn't match up with Scripture, the thing we do is not ignore that information, not minimize that information, not rationalize it away. The proper biblical response is to do the shub, to repent, to turn away from what you are doing and start doing what Jesus says. I talked with a young man this week uh, from our congregation who's in college. And as a result of the last uh, sermon series that we were in on our finances, this guy has signed up for automatic withdrawal here at church and is beginning to tithe 10% of what he makes back to the church. And this guy's in college. He does not have a lot of money to begin with, but as direct obedience, he has learned, he's repented. He's saying, I haven't been doing this before. This is what God's word says. And he's now changed his ways and he's changed his behavior and he's changed his patterns and he is growing up because he's learned how to do the shoe. It's interesting. One of Jesus' first messages when he began preaching was do the shoe. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. If you want to step into this amazing life of blessing and peace and happiness, of shalom, you know, this means when everything is as it should be, we first have to be able to repent of whatever it is that God may be putting his finger on in our life. In another part of the Gospels, after Jesus has just gotten done explaining what the life in the kingdom looks like and what this life of blessing looks like, uh, has just got done explaining that for about three chapters. He says this at the very end of Matthew chapter 7. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I would like to submit to you that the narrow gate and the narrow road that Jesus is talking about here is the narrow road of repentance, of turning back from God, turning from whatever it is that you've been doing, humbling yourself and saying, God, I want to return to you with all of my heart. And if we return to him, he promises to return to us. Now, this is not just a one-time, I've accepted Christ as my Savior type of deal, but it's an ongoing lifestyle of constantly, continually repenting when God's Spirit indicates that something in our life doesn't measure up with the commands of Scripture and the way of Jesus. Repentance. It is not a dirty word. 
It's not a negative word. It's actually a beautiful word because it's God's great invitation to this wonderful life that he has for each and every one of us. The doorway into the kingdom we all need to walk through and to experience it more and more. I have a friend. uh, His name is Tim. And long ago, Tim was uh, living the good life. Tim had his own business. He was making six figures. He was traveling uh, the country all over the place. And uh, he was living the dream, as they say. Tim was living the dream. Uh, But Tim uh, was living a lot of other stuff besides living the dream. He was uh, living a lot of infidelity because he liked having different uh, mistresses and ladies wherever he traveled throughout the country. And one thing led to another. And added to this, other things began to crowd out things in his life. Things like, like drugs and alcohol and fast company began to enter into Tim's life. And before Tim knew it, he landed himself in jail and just about lost it all. Now, amazingly, through all this, Tim's wife had stuck with him. And while he was sitting there in jail, Tim got a chance to do a lot of reflection and a lot of thinking and a lot of repenting. And uh, after he got out, he reached out to a friend of his, a guy named Downtown Harrison. Some of you guys might know him. And Harrison taught Tim how to do a new dance. He taught him how to do the shub. And he led him to faith in Jesus Christ. And Tim went back to his wife and repented. And the two of them have begun to learn to do this dance of the shub together. Because she had some repenting to do herself. She was, she was doing a lot of, of codependency and enabling of Tim's behavior. And so she's learning to do some repenting of herself. But together they're being discipled. Together, they're going to recovery. They're going to just about every single marriage conference that they can get their hands on. And things are so much better. They're not perfect. They're not perfect. But because Tim has learned how to repent, he's stepped into this life of blessing and fulfillment and happiness that God has in store for him. I was talking to Tim the other, just the other day. And I said, Tim, how would you describe the difference between the old Tim and the new Tim? Because Tim's email address is uh, Tim's new life. <laughs> Tim says, so, um, so how would you say, describe the difference between the old Tim and the new Tim? He said, he said, the old Tim, he says, I had everything, but I was not happy. In fact, I was miserable. And now I've lost all of that but I am more happy than I have ever been. Shub. It's this narrow doorway that Jesus invites us to walk through if we want to experience this life of happiness and blessing that he has for each one of us. This Christmas, as we approach the manger I would like to encourage you to receive it as God's great invitation. Return to me and I will return to you. 
Now, you may not be in serial infidelity. You may not be addicted to drugs. But I have a sneaky suspicion that we all have something that is preventing us from living that life. Maybe it's a secret. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a compulsive behavior we're unwilling to let go of. Maybe it's anger or bitterness. Maybe it's unforgiveness and resentment that we're holding on to. Maybe it's money that we're not willing to let go of. Maybe it's using shopping as a form of therapy. Maybe it's a relationship that's dishonoring to God. Whatever it is, there's something preventing us from experiencing this great life of blessedness that God is inviting each one of us into. Whatever it is, this Christmas, I pray we all learn to do the shub. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. Let's pray. I'm going to ask you to take some time to reflect and just talk to God at the very threshold of this Christmas season. Ask God what might it be that might be preventing you from experiencing all that he has for you. This future of abundant life that he has in store for each and every one of us. Jesus said, I have come that they might experience life and have it in every sense of the meaning of the word, have it to its fullness. But in order to experience that life, we need to walk through this narrow doorway of repentance. I'm going to ask each and every one of you to just take some time and ask God to reveal what that might be by His Holy Spirit in your life.
Father, we come before you together. Because while we individually need to repent, you know that we also need to repent as a family together. That while we individually need to acknowledge the ways in which we are selfish and self-seeking, the ways in which we have not remembered you individually, we also confess together Father, we thank you that you have given us the prophets. We thank you that you have given us these strong voices throughout history to continue to to raise their hands and point their fingers. And while it may seem that they're pointing their fingers at the people, what they're really doing, Lord, is pointing the people to you. And we thank you most, Father, for the, the one who some believe is only a prophet, but who is much, much more. Who had that same message when he first arrived in the scene to say, repent. But in the event that we did not know when we turned, which way to go, this prophet said, follow me, for I am the way. He's not just a prophet. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the anointed one. Father, we know that in the midst of even turning, we will not be faithful in that. And so we thank you for the joy and the hope that we can have in he who is faithful, Jesus. Father, some of us here this morning, we may need to repent to someone we're sitting next to. Some things may have happened on the way here this morning, Lord, you know that we need to repent of. Some things are going to happen when we leave this place this morning that we're going to need to repent of. And we're going to need to do that dance, the dance of the shoe, so that we can experience your shalom. It's in humility, Lord, that we're able to do that. And it's not something that you just impress upon us and say do this it's something that you have demonstrated for us when you sent your son to take that dance and do it for us and father help us by your spirit and his power to set aside any power we think we have And take upon us the power of the way which has been made straight for us because of Jesus Christ. 
And help us to do that, not just now, but help us to do that as we leave this place, as we scatter throughout this city and county, as we go off to work. May we continue to rely on you and do that dance. And in so doing, reflect who you are and the good news and the hope that this entire season points to, the joy that, that, that is not worth celebrating without it. And so we bring ourselves before you, Father, and we thank you for these things. Lead us, Lord. Lead us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.